But today we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And of course, all four Gospels have a, have a record of the events. We're not going to read all four. Instead, we're going to read from Matthew. We're going to read from Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 21, you'll find, starting from verse 1, we have the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I've never been to Jerusalem. I'd like to at some point, but so far I haven't had the opportunity. But I was trying to think about what it must have been like on that day. You see, the closest I can come to a triumphant entry is the London Marathon. I've done the marathon three times and it doesn't get any easier the more you do it. Um, But... Every time, the one thing that's really stuck with me is the fact that from the the starting hooter, just outside Greenwich Park, all the way around, it's incredible. The crowds. The crowds, from the word go, are several people deep for the whole way. And the first time I did it, Joe had been doing some, some research into, you know, preparation. And one of the things she'd come across was um, it, when, you, when you get your, your vest or T-shirt that you're running in, write your name on it. And she said that to me and I said, oh, don't be daft. I don't want to do that. It's how egotistical. You know, Tom, no, I feel like a right Wally. I said, no, no, no. Anyway, eventually, as usually happens, we talked about it and decided Joe was right. And so um, my name was written on my running top. Boy, am I glad that she won that battle. Because when you get into the latter stages and your legs are kind of feeling like jelly and it's painful and every step, every part of your body is screaming at you to stop, I cannot tell you how important it is to have crowds of people calling your name. It personalises the experience and somehow, even though you don't know these people from Adam, you feel that because they're investing time in you, you've got to pay it back by keeping going. And so you keep going and going and going and eventually you, you, you um, it's about 21 miles, I think, you go under a big tunnel just past, um, just 
um, on the way uh, past the Tower of London um, and you go through this, through this tunnel and you come out and you're eventually you hit the embankment and you're running along the embankment and then you get to the mall and the crowds are just growing and growing and growing and the noise is incredible and you're surrounded by runners and by crowds and people are cheering for you, it's your name being called out. It feels magnificent even though, even though it's by far the most painful experience of my life. It's also probably the most wonderful, euphoric feeling that I've ever experienced as well. And then when you hit the mall and they've got the big stadium set up and then there are, there are crowds, it's like an amphitheatre, the noise is bouncing around and it gets you through that last quarter mile or so down Birdcage Walk and you eventually you see the finish and even when you can see the finish, your legs are still saying, don't bother, you've pretty much done it, that's good enough, isn't it? And you see people, you see people staggering and, and, and lolling and, and physically their legs are actually giving up and you eventually, you eventually cross the line and you've had, well, <laughs> if you go at my sort of pace, three and a half to four hours, um, I'd like to be quicker but I never quite got there, of people shouting your name and cheering you on and you cross the line and it all stops. You cross the line and it's, the biggest anti-climax you can imagine. Because suddenly all these, these tens of thousands of cheering fans are nowhere to be seen. And you think, how fickle! I've just run 26 and a half miles! You liked me when you saw me suffering, but you're not here now, are you? Who's going to buy me a pint or, or carry me to the tube to get me home? No one! And then, of course, someone comes up to you and gives you a, a goodie bag, which... He's got all sorts of stuff in. Then they give you a medal, which is massive. It weighs a ton. And you think, oh, the life's like giving me a brick to carry. You know, well done, son. Here, carry that. Thanks. But you see, for the 26.2 miles that you run, it feels like a triumphant end. It feels like when you get into um, the centre of London, that is going to be a triumphant entry. People are shouting and cheering and calling your name. However, all I'd done, and all any marathon runner has done, in preparation for that triumphant entry, is run. And I'm not downplaying that, it's hard work, and you have to take a lot, it takes a lot of dedication and time and work. Um, but ultimately, you've just done some running. In the approach to Jerusalem, Jesus has performed many miracles. When he gets to Jerusalem, there has been a crowd of people that have gone before him saying to the whole city, guess who's coming? Guess who's coming? And so the stories of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, the, the water into wine, the walking on the water, all of the, the miraculous miracle stories that we know now, they've been passed on through the rumour mill and they've probably been elaborated and exaggerated Although, to be honest, I don't know if you can do that with a miracle because they're so incredible in, 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 their, in their, the actual fact of the story. But the last thing that had happened was the, healing, uh, the, the raising from the dead of Lazarus. And so it's almost like, look, you remember all those stories you've been hearing about this guy? Well, look, he's coming, but you'll never guess the latest one, the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. He's just healed a bloke from the dead. He's got into a tomb and said, get up to a dead bloke, and he came out. This guy walked out. And so that's why these crowds come. 
Because people have heard the stories and they've heard them from people they trust. They've heard them from, from friends and from neighbours, from, from travellers, that traders and merchants that travel to and from Jerusalem and, and other places to buy and sell. The stories of Jesus had gone before him. And it must have been a bit like a marathon for Jesus and the disciples and the crowds that followed. As I say, I've never been to Jerusalem, but the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is about 12 or 13 miles. Not a massive distance. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is over 3,000 feet above sea level. So in that journey of 12 or so miles, you you have to climb almost 4,000 feet. That's a long, steep journey. That is not an easy walk. It's a difficult journey. Now, of course, they weren't running. Jesus didn't have his Nike Air on or anything like that. But it was still a long journey. And it was the completion of a journey that Jesus had been talking about for a long time. But also, of course, there were some people that weren't cheering. We're told, aren't we, in that account from Matthew, that the whole city was stirred. The whole city was stirred. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the whole city was over the moon that Jesus was on his way. Certainly we know that the chief priests and the Pharisees were not particularly pleased. Because ever since Jesus had had started performing his miracles and claiming to be the Son of God, there had been conflict. One of the things that happened shortly before the accounts of the triumphant entry was the account of Jesus and his disciples being chastised by the Pharisees for not performing the right washing, hand-washing ritual before eating. You see, the Pharisees were very, very strict in the way that they applied Jewish law. One of the, the hand-washing rituals was that you had to take a certain amount of water, no less than the equivalent of one and a half egg cups, and it had to be poured onto the fingers of the hand, run to the top of the wrist, the whole area had to be washed, and then from the top of the wrist it had to be rinsed off because it was dirty water, it couldn't go back down the hand, which was now considered to be clean. The Pharisees were very strict about this sort of thing. And when they challenged Jesus and the disciples, they didn't like the fact that Jesus didn't didn't apply the same sort of of level of detail to the way that he practised the law. They felt offended. And in a way, we 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 can make the Pharisees out to be the bad guys, can't we? We can make the Pharisees out to be pedantic and to be a bit dim for not realising, even to be a bit evil sometimes. But what we've got to remember is that the Pharisees, the Pharisees upheld these traditions because for generations throughout the history of Israel, these traditions have been the only thing that have kept them going. When, way back in Genesis, when when the Israelites were taken into slavery by the Egyptians, 400 years they were in slavery so many generations 
grew up and, and worked and died and never knew anything other than being a slave. The only aspect of their faith that they could keep was the law. No one could take that away from them. It was so ingrained into their, into their, their work, their, their, the way they lived their lives. It was so ingrained into them that they became very protective of it because they knew that that was, that was what God had given them. That was the one thing that God had given them that couldn't be taken away. And they knew that if they stopped practising the law, if they allowed it to be abused or ridiculed or even just forgotten, then the one part of their relationship with God that they could protect would be lost. And so actually the Pharisees, when they see Jesus coming along and they don't recognise Jesus as the Son of God, even in that reading in Matthew, we're told that when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and people asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet. So people didn't realise at this point that Jesus was who he claimed to be. There were still question marks. They loved, they loved his tricks, they loved the miracles, but there were some question marks over some of the more wacky stuff he had said, like claiming to be the son of God. But the Pharisees, when Jesus began to kick against the law, when Jesus began to defile the law as far as they were concerned, they wanted to protect it because they'd seen so many people come along before. They'd been, they'd been the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians... They'd all come in and tried to, tried to wipe out the Israelite relationship with their God. And the only thing the Israelites could preserve to keep that going, keep that thread of relationship going from generation to generation to generation was the law that God had given them. And they knew that if they honoured that, they were honouring God and therefore preserving the relationship. So let's not make the Pharisees out to be the bad guys. They were trying to protect their faith. We've all made those sorts of mistakes, haven't we? Where we try and protect our faith and end up damaging a relationship with a person who then turns their back on faith altogether. And we can kick ourselves and say, oh, if only I, if, it's so easy in hindsight to see, I should have dealt with that differently. 200 years before these events took place, a Syrian army came to Jerusalem. They invaded Jerusalem and they enforced the worship of false gods upon the Israelites. There was Syrian occupation of the whole area around Jerusalem. And there was one village that refused to comply. There was one village that said, no, we're going to fight to the death to protect who we are and what we are. The priest in that village was a guy called Judas Maccabeus and he gathered his sons and their, um, the, the rest of the men in their village and they formed a, a militia and they took on the Syrian army and as they, as they began to take them on so other, other Jews from the area come and came and joined their forces and in the end they had a formidable army and they rose up and they took Jerusalem back and that's known as the Maccabite Rebellion. And the reason I'm telling you this is because um, after that, you see, this high priest who had, who had refused to back down, the one who had preserved 
um, the, 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 the Jewish relationship with God, the one who would refuse to accept the worship of other gods. He was appointed leader. He was appointed, in effect, the governor of Jerusalem. And his bloodline, when he died, his son took over, and then his son took over, and so on and so forth. In effect, they became a royal family. So when we get to Palm Sunday, the situation in Jerusalem is that the high priest is almost like the king. His power and his authority only succumb to Rome. The priests were almost, it was almost like a Pharisaic mafia. The way that they traded, the way that they ran things. They were trading in the temple. Now, as I was preparing for today, I read about the, the, the trading that would go on in, in the temple, and a lot of it was about sacrificial animals. You would, um, you would take a, a, a dove or something to, um, to the temple for a sacrifice. And you'd be told, that dove's no good. You can't, you can't use that one. Here, look, I've got another one here. I'll do you a trade, but it'll cost you 100 shekels as well. And so you do a trade. They'd take the, the, the naff dove and give a different one and take the money. Right, now you can go and do your sacrifice. And then the next person that came into the temple, you can't use that dove. Here, this one. They were charging a fee on this exchange service. And this was going on, and this is what angered Jesus so much. This is why the, just after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple and said, no, this is not the way that we should be conducting ourselves. But you see, all of this was run by this kind of Pharisaic mafia. So when Jesus came in and turned over the tables in the temple, when Jesus had crowds hailing him, waving palm leaves, just as they had done when kings had entered Jerusalem in years gone by, they decided they had to do something. They had to do something to get rid of this, this upstart from Nazareth. And so that's why, so soon after Palm Sunday, we find ourselves with the euphoria still ringing in our ears, but kneeling at the cross. Because Jesus made, made a difference. Jesus, Jesus tried to make things change. Jesus came into Jerusalem and suddenly people recognised him for who he was and the establishment was threatened. The establishment was threatened. You see, for so many of the Pharisees that Jesus came into contact with, they were simply trying to protect what they knew to be instruction from God. They didn't recognise Jesus, so we can give them a hard time. But the chief priest and the Pharisees in Jerusalem they were living proof of George Orwell's statement that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. They were corrupt. And so when a king comes in who is, who is pure, then suddenly the corrupted have to do something. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem having just, having just raised Lazarus from the dead. There are crowds that follow. There are crowds that go before. They go into the city, they stir it up, people come out, they hail the king. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognise him. They cut the palm branches. They wave them. There's this procession. Cloaks are laid on the floor. The laying of a cloak on the floor was really symbolic because it, for most people they only had the one cloak. It was the outer garment. It was the, it was the, one, that, the one that kind of, it was your peacock feathers. It showed off your wealth. It showed off what you could afford. And so to lay it in front of somebody for them to trample over, in effect was saying, I will lay down what is most valuable for you. There's a story, I don't know whether it's true or not, but apparently um, when Queen Elizabeth I was once um, walking through the streets of London um, with uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and some other entourage, presumably, there was mud on the road and Sir Walter Raleigh took off his cloak and laid it down in front of her so she didn't get muddy feet. Now, of course, he could afford more than one cloak, so his sacrifice possibly wasn't, wasn't that great. But it is a symbolic thing. It is symbolic to lay down what you hold most dear in order for someone else to trample over it. And so on Palm Sunday, when we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we have to ask ourselves, what do we hold most dear in life? And I know it's easy to sit there and say, Jesus. And normally that's the right answer in church, yeah. But we sang, didn't we, Jesus be the centre. And before that I spoke about, about how easy it is to let something else, let something else become the centre of our existence. To allow Jesus to be pushed out to the side slightly. What are those things? Could you see... They can become our cloak. They can become the thing that defines us, the thing that when people look at us, their judgment is made on the cloak that we wear. And if that cloak happens to be the new car that we've been talking about for for years and we've finally got it, or if if it's the pay rise that we've just had that we kind of want to subtly let people know about because we're really proud of it, or if it's the the son, daughter, granddaughter, who's just got a promotion at work and we're really proud and didn't, you know, first person in our family to, to really lift their, raise their game, to get that status, I want to let people know. These things can become our cloaks. How willing are we to lay our cloak in front of Jesus? How willing are we to humble ourselves and have it trampled over, to remember what Paul said, that all the riches in the world pale into insignificance when we come face to face with Jesus. When our cloaks get soiled, when the things that we value on earth get trampled, do we give thanks in all circumstances? Do we still rejoice because despite everything despite the fact the car's been written off, the granddaughter didn't get through her probation or whatever it happens to be, despite that, Jesus is Lord. So we still give thanks in all circumstances because we always have something to give thanks for. Do we serve wholeheartedly, even when we've had 
load of ungrateful abuse over things that we've done and the way that we've done things, do we still say, okay, I haven't pleased everybody, but you know what, I've pleased God because I'm serving wholeheartedly as if I'm serving God, not man. If we can have that sort of attitude, then we are laying our cloak before Jesus and say that all the pride, all the, the riches of the world, Lord, I lay it down for you just to walk over because you, you are more important than anything else in my life. That was, the, that was the symbolism as Jesus walked into Jer- Jerusalem. That was probably the key thing that really got up the noses of the Pharisees. They don't do that for me. I keep all those laws. I wear the right clothes. I say the right things. I keep the right rituals. I wash at the right times. I go to the temple. I make the right sacrifices. They don't lay their cloaks in front of me, do they? <coughs> suddenly, suddenly all of that all of those things that they did to keep God's law, it was purely so that they could receive the praise of man. As people laid their cloaks in front of Jesus, we don't know their names, they're not recorded in history, we're just told that it happened because they did it for his glory, not for ours. So as we approach Maundy Thursday, Good Friday and prepare ourselves for the celebration of Easter Sunday. This week coming, let's just ask ourselves when those things that we hold really dear in the world, those things that are of of, of value to us, when we lay them and see them trampled as the cult carrying the Son of God walks over them, do we respond by saying, All the glory is yours? Or do we respond by saying, crucify him, crucify him? We can all be fickle. We can all make mistakes and get things wrong. And that's why we should be so grateful that we have a God who knows us because he made us. A God who sent his son to live to die, to be resurrected, all so that in our fickleness and in our faults we never find ourselves cut off forever from our Father. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that there was a time as as your son entered your city to fulfil the plan you had for him. People looked and saw him. And although they still didn't quite quite realise who he was, at least the process had begun. As they saw Jesus entering, as they saw the the palm leaves being waved, the cloaks being laid down, the cult being ridden. It may not have been the the saviour that they anticipated, but it was the saviour that you had sent. And we now know that to be true. We know also, Lord, we know because your word says it, that although he entered Jerusalem riding the foal of a donkey, when he comes back, he'll be on a white horse, at head of an army leading the, 
the final triumphant victory on that day. And we give thanks for that, Lord, because we know that that will seal our eternity with him. We know, Lord, that we are promised our place in heaven if we choose to lay our cloak at his feet, to make him the centre of our lives, to honour him in all that we do, to give thanks in all circumstances, to serve wholeheartedly, to love the Lord our God and to love and serve our neighbour. So Father, bless us on this day and bless us as we go into the Easter week, helping us, reminding us to always, always, always remember that you are the most important thing in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.